0: Romans chapter 3, we are going to take a one Sunday break from the Gospel of John because most people tomorrow night will be celebrating Halloween. They'll be going trick-or-treating, but we as evangelical Protestants celebrate what we call Reformation Day. October 31st, 1517, 499 years ago, the Augustinian monk Martin Luther went and nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, and it, it launched a firestorm. It launched what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so we have to ask the question, what was Martin Luther protesting? What was he against? Well, during that time, there was a man named Johann Tetzel. And Johann Tetzel was going around the countryside to try to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And so what he was doing was he was selling what we call indulgences. Now what's an indulgence? An indulgence is something that you can go purchase from a priest to be able to get one of your loved ones out of purgatory. And so he was basically going around and selling these indulgences, and you could go and you could buy an indulgence in hopes that your dead loved one may somehow get freed from purgatory. And he was charging high rates, and he was keeping a lot of the proceeds for himself, and Luther said, this is absolutely not right. And so he posted that 95 thesis, and you didn't realize that the, the number one thesis of the 95 theses was repentance, that we are to repent before the living God. R.C. Sproul's Ligonier Ministry and our own Southern Baptist Lifeway back in April surveyed 3,000 adults and asked them about their religious beliefs. And just a few weeks ago, they came out with the study. It is called the State of American Theology Study. Here's what your fellow Americans believe about key cardinal truths. Seventy percent of Americans agree with this statement. People have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. Sixty-five percent agree with this statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Fifty-two percent agree By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. 77% agree. An individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. Clearly, we live in a world where the vast majority of Americans have no clue what the gospel of salvation is. And before we start picking upon our culture, what about us as evangelicals? What about us that claim the name of Christ? Is anybody here familiar with a man named Frank Beckwith? He also goes by the name Francis Beckwith. He was raised in a Roman Catholic family, grew up going to mass, going to Catholic school. In 1978. He became a born-again Christian. He became what we would call an evangelical Christian. He left the Roman Catholic Church. He became a pastor. He became a speaker. He went on the circuit all around the world defending the evangelical doctrines of the the Protestant Reformation. And back in 2007, he did something very, very surprising. He was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, which is the most important society of, of evangelicals. So at this meeting in 2007, as an evangelical, he shocked the world and said, I'm no longer an evangelical. I'm going back to the Roman Catholic Church. And he went back and denounced everything that he had gone through as an evangelical. And he wrote a book called Return to Rome, Confessions of an Evangelical Catholic. So we have people in our culture today that are reverting back to Catholicism, (laughs) We've got people today that don't have a clue about what the gospel is. And so we've got to ask the question. It may be 499 years ago that Martin Luther launched the Protestant Reformation, but here's the question we've got to ask. Are we still in need of a reformation today? Do we need to keep on reforming our minds, our lives, our church to the authority of Scripture? Yes, we do. Do. And what I want to do today on this Reformation Sunday is address a doctrine, a teaching, that is the most fundamental teaching, I believe, about our salvation. It's oftentimes underemphasized, it's sometimes not fully understood, it's a term that I'm sure that you guys know, but what does it truly mean? You see, there were two aspects of the Protestant Reformation that were really, really important. The first was what they call the formal source, and that was sola scriptura, that we need to get back to the Bible, the Bible alone, and that was the the main issue. But the second issue was what they call sola fide, faith alone. So what I want to address for you this morning is just the simple doctrine of justification by faith alone. What is the Protestant Reformation? It is that the Bible alone tells us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so when we think about this doctrine of justification, it is a very crucial doctrine that we understand. J.I. Packer calls justification by faith alone the storm center of the Reformation. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about it. Of course, we love what Charles Spurgeon says, because here we go. and only the way Charles Spurgeon can any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church tell us how you really feel Spurgeon So I could sit here and give you a theological definition of what justification by faith is alone, but I don't want to do that. I want to let Paul tell us, because we get our theology from the scriptures, not the other way around. We don't impose theology on top of the scriptures. Our theology comes from the scriptures. So let's go to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Australian New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, has said this about the passage we're about to read. He says, quote, This may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls what we're about to read the Acropolis of the Bible and the Christian faith. Let's read this passage of Scripture together. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God of the one who has faith in Jesus. The most fundamental question that every single person has to ask is simply this. How do I, as a sinner, get into a right relationship with the holy God? Or let's ask it a different way. How can a holy God accept, forgive, be in a relationship with a sinner? And Paul answers that question. You and I need to be righteous. And so here's the main point of this passage of Scripture. It's the Protestant Reformation in a nutshell. The Scriptures alone reveal that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So Paul is going to address a righteousness that we need. And he's not going to leave us in the dark as to what kind of righteousness this truly is. And he starts by telling us what type of righteousness it's not. Notice what he says there in verse 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness that you and I need to be accepted by God is not in things that we do. It's not by going to church. It's not by obeying the Ten Commandments. It's not by trying to be a good person. It's not by giving to the poor. There's nothing in you and me that can produce anything that makes us acceptable with God. We don't have the righteousness. It's not by our good deeds. What does Isaiah tell us in Isaiah 64, 6? We have all become like one who's unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the good things that we do are polluted. So you and I cannot produce any type of right-standing, good deeds, good works, anything to be acceptable in God's sight. So so then the question becomes, well, how then do we get accepted? How do we get forgiven? How do we receive this righteousness? Paul's going to unpack for us five glorious truths about our justification by faith alone. The first four are going to be in Romans chapter 3. The last one we're going to go into Romans chapter 5. So what I want to do this morning is just to allow Paul to speak for us and let's explore these five truths that we desperately need to understand about our salvation. So here's truth number one. The need for justification. The need for Paul begins with the need. Look at verse 23. We're very familiar with this passage of Scripture. We use it a lot of times when we witness. We may have memorized this. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can easily just gloss over that and say, you know, I've heard that millions of times. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It addresses two issues in that one passage of Scripture. For all have sinned. This is really talking about our nature. That you and I were born sinners by nature because of what Adam and Eve did. We have inherited what we call original sin. We are sinners by nature. So every single one of you that's born into this world is born in sin. We're born under God's wrath. We are guilty. Paul has made the case in the first three chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 1, you're all toast. Romans chapter 2, Jews, in case you think you're getting off, you're toast. Romans chapter 3, Jews and Gentiles, you're both toast. And then he gets to this, but now. For all have sinned. You are a sinner by nature. It's in your nature to sin. But notice what he says, and you fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory is in the present tense in the original language, which is very important. It means this, you are constantly, you are continually as a lifestyle, ongoingly falling short of God's glory. To fall short means to be deprived, to lack, to not have it. Now Paul very easily could have said this, for all have sinned and fall short of God's law. And there would be nothing wrong with that. We know that sin is a disobedience of God's law. But notice what he says. For all have sinned and you keep continually falling short, being deprived of what? God's glory. He goes right to the heart of the issue of what sin is. Yes, sin is a failure to obey God's law. But ultimately, sin is offense against a holy God who deserves our worship. And so sin fundamentally is a continual lifestyle of falling short of giving God glory, giving God praise, giving God the worship that's due His name. That's what sin is. Sin fundamentally is idolatry. In your heart of hearts, you would rather be God than to let God be God. And you are constantly falling short of giving Him glory. That's a major need. Because what it shows us is in our condition as sinners and in our actions as sinners, we are hopeless, we are helpless, and we are hell-bound, and we can do nothing to save ourselves. We are in a state of constantly falling short of God's glory. So the first thing Paul says is you've got to understand your need. What's the desperate need? You are a sinner in need of salvation. You are constantly falling short of worshiping God. You're constantly falling short of of, of, of glorifying God. You are helpless as a sinner. That's the, the number one thing Paul reminds us of here, your need. Okay, but the second thing he tells us is not only our need, but he goes on to tell us, secondly, the source of our justification, the source. You need to pay very careful attention to the words. Now, I know you all have English translations, And most of you don't know the Greek language, so let me help you with how Paul words this. In verse 21, when he says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, that little preposition of really should be from. It's a preposition in the original language that means source. Initiation. In other words, you don't produce the righteousness. It has to come from God to you, outside of yourself. Its source is in God. God gives you the righteousness. And he goes on to explain that. Look at verse 24. You are justified by his grace as a gift. It is a gift. So you can't produce this righteousness because you're a sinner, God has to give it to you as a gift. It has to come from outside of you. You have to receive the gift of grace. Now, this is where Paul actually uses the term justified in verse 24, and are justified. What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be justified? That's the key word in this passage of Scripture. He's going to go on for the next few chapters to unpack what it means to be justified, but let me just tell you what that word means in the original language, and let me give you an illustration that I've given many times before because I think it's helpful. The word itself comes from two worlds. It comes from the world of banking, accounts and transfers and bankings and credits and debits. All of you adults understand your your checking account, your bank account. It also comes from the world of the courtroom. So here's the illustration. I've used it many times before, but there's always new people, and so here's the illustration. Pretend like your life is a bank account. And on the other side of the ledger sheet is Christ's life. Okay, so we're making a comparison here between your life and Christ's life. So your life is a bank account, and so... As as a sinner, when God the Father, who is the judge of the universe, looks down upon your life, what does he see in your bank account? A negative gazillion balance. A a huge negative. A negative balance that you can never make up. So you're in major debt. You're in major guilt. And so when God looks down upon your life and he sees that negative balance, what's the only thing God can pronounce? Guilty. You are guilty. Guilty. And you can't do anything to make up for that guilt because you keep sinning, you keep sinning, you keep getting yourself more and more in debt. So here's the beautiful thing that happens. By faith, when you believe in Jesus, there's a transfer, there's a credit that goes out of your account. Immediately out of your account goes all of that sin debt, out of your account, transferred over to Christ. Now he carries your sin by faith when you trust in christ justification means your sin goes out of your account and it goes to christ's account there's a a reckoning a a crediting so where does that leave you zero right which is good most of us would want not to have a negative balance but who wants to have zero can't go out and buy lunch afterwards if you have zero in your bank account need a positive balance can you produce a positive balance no you cannot here's the beautiful thing that happens the other direction The perfect life of Christ, his perfect righteousness, his perfect record, his 33 years of living perfectly, that whole record, that whole life of Christ is credited to your account. So think about this transaction that takes place. Your sins go out of your account to Jesus and his perfect righteousness goes into your account. So now when God looks down upon you, what can God say now? Not guilty. Accepted. Forgiven. Because what does he see? Does he see you? No, he sees Christ in your place. You are justified. You are declared not guilty. You stand in the righteousness of Christ. And this was not a righteousness that you produced, it came from outside of you. God had to give it to you as a gift. That's why Paul can say in second Corinthians five twenty one for our sake. He made him, that's talking about Jesus, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what's our need? Number one, our need. We're desperately in need of this righteousness. We can't produce it. We're sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. What's the source? God and his grace. God grants it to us. God gives it to us. God graces us with it. But none of that would be possible without the third thing that is the ground of our justification and that comes in the cross none of this would be possible without the cross of Christ and what Jesus has done so Paul begins to explain to us the glories of the cross and he's going to give us three pictures three descriptions of what Jesus did on the cross And the first one we see is redemption. Notice what he says there in verse 24. And are justified. Okay, what's justified mean? We're declared not guilty. We're declared not guilty. God can make a declaration that we're not guilty, that we're accepted. It's by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. that's That's a big word that we often use. Redemption, redeemed. What does it mean? I want you to think back to the Old Testament for a moment. When the nation of Israel was in bondage, when they were in Egypt, they were enslaved. And what did God tell them to do? I'm going to release you from slavery, but you have to go kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and lentils of your house, and when the angel of death passes over your house, your firstborn son will be spared. And they did that by faith. And then God miraculously rescued them with his outstretched arm through the Red Sea into the promised land. So here's the picture God, by the sacrifice of blood, rescues a people out of slavery and brings them to freedom. That's an Old Testament picture of redemption. New Testament picture. During Paul's day, there were slave markets in the New Testament times, and if somebody was in slavery, you could go purchase them out of slavery. And you would purchase them out of slavery with what we call the ransom price. You would redeem them. I would go redeem somebody out of slavery. So Paul takes these two images, what they would know from the Old Testament, what they would know from their own culture, and he makes a spiritual application. He says this, every single one of us was in spiritual bondage. We were enslaved to Satan. We were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to darkness. And what did Jesus do by his precious blood? He bought us out. He rescued us out. He freed us out of that by his own blood. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, his blood, as a ransom for many, a payment to buy us, out of that slavery. Ephesians 1, 7, in Him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And how does Peter describe the redemption that comes through Christ's blood? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought, you were purchased from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were you bought with? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the first thing that Paul shows us under the cross is redemption. This buying out of slavery. You, if you are a Christian, if you've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, Christ has bought you out of slavery and you're free in his grace. But Paul takes us deeper into the cross here by introducing the holy of holies as far as I'm concerned, as far as what happened on the cross. And the second thing we see here is propitiation. We see redemption But secondly, we see propitiation. That's a big word, but notice how it shows up in your Bible. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Some of your translations may say atoning sacrifice. It's the biblical word propitiation. Now, what is propitiation? What does it mean? It simply means that when Christ died on the cross, He took the full justice The full wrath of God in His body, so that we wouldn't have to experience that. Which which brings up a question: Is God a God of wrath? We don't like to talk about that. Does God, as God, have the right to punish sin? Does God just wink at sin and brush it under the carpet? Does God just say, let bygones be bygones? Or if God is a holy, just, and righteous God, does he not by his very nature have to punish sin? Does God have to be angry at sin? Yes, he is angry at sin. God has to punish sin. God has to show wrath towards sin. Now, when we think of the word wrath, we get all confused. When we think of wrath, we may think of, oh my goodness, I have two toddlers over here in the corner and they're fighting over a toy. Those kids are showing wrath. It's not an infantile like nanny, nanny, boo, boo. It's not like God's like an infant. Or we may think wrath. That, that reminds me of like um, Zeus throwing down lightning bolts from heaven because God had a bad hair day. That's not wrath. Wrath is not you yelling at your spouse in the morning. You see, when God expresses wrath, It is a deep, settled anger that comes from his nature as a holy God. It is a righteous anger where he has to punish sin. He has to be angry with sin. He has to deal with sin. And how did he do that? He unleashed it on his son. Propitiation involves the turning aside of God's wrath against sin by Jesus standing in our place and taking it so that you and I would never have to experience wrath. John three thirty six, Jesus tells us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let me just say this very clearly. There are two ways you can experience God's wrath. One is you can experience God's wrath forever in hell, separated from him for eternity. Or number two, you can have Jesus suffer it in your place so you'll never have to experience it. That's called propitiation. For the wrath of God, the very hell of God, is poured out on Jesus. That's why Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, le, lemmasik bachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you poured out your anger and justice upon me? Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I like the way Alistair Begg says it. I'm not going to do the Scottish accent, but you can just picture it in your mind, Alistair Begg saying this. He goes to the garbage heap for all my garbage. He goes to the cross for all my rebellion, for all my filthy thoughts, all my self-preoccupation, all my pride, all my self-aggrandizement. There is no story in all of human history like this. There is no notion in all religions of the world that has come close to touching this. This is imponderable, mysterious, majestic, and glorious. This is all about God and the wonder of His grace. I can't even conceive of the depths that Christ went through on the cross for me and for you. And it breaks my heart when I think about the fact that my Savior, Jesus Christ, never once knew sin and thought, word, and deed, never once committed a sin, but on those moments when he was hanging on the cross, he experienced sin, and it was not his, it was mine. And he went there willingly for me. It's imponderable. You can't even think about it. Philip Graham Ryken has said this. It was as if God had taken a giant bucket and scooped up all the sins of his people, all the jealousy and the anger and the lying and the rebellion and the stealing and the incest and the hypocrisy and the envy and the swearing and dumped them all out on Jesus Christ. That's Propitiation. There's redemption. He buys us out of slavery. There's propitiation. He takes God's wrath in our place. But Paul says there's a third thing. There's demonstration. God does this to prove a point. Notice in verse 25, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Back up in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. That word show means to manifest, to put on display publicly, to prove, to vindicate, to give compelling proof. God is is saying that I put Jesus forward on the cross to prove once and for all my love for lost people. I'm going to demonstrate it. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God put forward Jesus as a redemption as a propitiation, and as a demonstration. A demonstration of what? His justice. You see, here's the fundamental question that Paul answers in the very last verse there in verse 26. How can God punish sin and at the same time let us go scot-free? How can God do that? How can God punish sin and yet we not go punished? How can God be the just and the justifier? The answer, it comes in the cross. How can God be just? And how can God get us off scot-free? He punishes Christ in our place so that we don't have to experience that punishment. God can be just in punishing sin in Christ, and God can be the justifier by declaring us not guilty because of Christ. So we've seen the need. What's the need? You and I are desperate sinners in need of salvation. What's the source? The grace, the gift of God. What's the ground? The beautiful, powerful cross of Christ. But there's a fourth thing that we need to understand. There's something experientially that every single person's got to experience. And that is the means of justification. How does this happen to you personally? Okay, how does this become real for you? You were not there 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, How does this become real for you? How do you get justified? How do you receive this gift of grace? Paul answers it very clearly. It comes through faith. Notice what he says there in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. You've got to have faith in Christ. Nobody is saved without personal faith in Christ. So, what does it mean? It means you must come to that point personally where you realize, I am a sinner, I need Jesus. I look at the cross and wow, that is amazing, that, that's glorious, that, that, is, that is powerful. But, but you can come to those points where you, you think about those things, but you never actually personally exercise faith. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to place your faith in Jesus. You've got to trust Him by faith alone. You're not trusting in your works. You're not trusting in a sacrament. You're not trusting in your church attendance. You're not trusting in your goodness. You are trusting in Christ alone. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is a receiving and a resting in Christ alone for salvation, resting in His finished work that He's done on the cross. I love what Martin Luther has said about the cross. Of course, we got to give a Martin Luther quote because it's Reformation Sunday. Here's what he said. I'm going to read this slow. Learn to know Christ and Him crucified. Learn to sing to Him and say, Lord Jesus, You are my righteousness. I am Your sin. You took on You what was mine, yet set on me what was Yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. What's Martin Luther saying? Jesus, you took on sin, which was mine, so that I could become what I could never become, righteous. We are sinners in need of salvation. And it only comes through the grace of God in the cross of Christ to be received by faith. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there's one more thing I want us to look at. And that's the fifth aspect. The practical application or the benefits of justification. How does this practically apply to you? Once you've been justified, what do you get to experience that? What does this mean for you? Well, let's Jump over to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, at the very end of chapter 3 all the way into chapter 4, Paul is going to unpack this doctrine of justification. He uses Abraham as an example. He gives a lot of different examples, and then he, he kind of brings it to a close here with this therefore And let's see what he tells us about what it means to be justified. What does it mean to be declared not guilty? What does it mean to have Christ as our propitiation? What does it mean to be redeemed out of slavery? What does it mean to be saved? What do we get to experience? And this is glorious. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there it is, we've been justified by faith, faith alone, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, just a side note here. Having been justified. That isn't what we call an aorist participle. I don't want to bore you with the Greek, but let me just trust me. It means a one point in time, definite, never to be repeated event. You are justified one time the moment you trust Christ for salvation. You don't experience degrees of justification. You don't experience levels of justification. I could go into a whole other conversation about how the Roman Catholic Church believes that, but you can talk to me later about that. Just trust me when the Bible says when you've been justified, it's a one-time experience instantaneous acceptance by God before the throne of grace you have been justified now what do you we get to experience two blessings here the first one in verse one says we have peace with God which assumes what before we were saved we were enemies of God we were hostile to God this is not some subjective hey man let's just have world peace This is an objective reality where you stand in a permanent state of being forgiven by God your Father and you experience unending peace with your Savior. But the second thing Paul says is you have permanent access. Notice what he says there. We have obtained access. Some of your translations may use the word introduction. It's a nuanced Greek word that really can mean access or introduction. What it means is this. Let me give you the best illustration I can tell you. How many of you here tomorrow want to get on a plane, fly to Washington, D.C., and just barge into the Oval Office and say, hello, President Obama, I'm here to meet you? Anybody have authority to do that? Nobody has authority, and you'd probably get stopped by a bunch of uh, secret service guards before you get here. Nobody can just barge into the presence of of the president. Nobody can barge into the presence of a king. You have to have what? An invitation. You have to have an escort. You have to have an introduction. This is what Paul's saying here. As a sinner, you can't just barge into the presence of a holy God. You need an introduction. You You need an escort. And what has Christ done by His blood, by saving you? He's granted you access. He's ushered you into the presence of the king. He's given you this introduction. And notice what Paul says. It's a grace in which we stand. Perfect tense, which means this. It is a permanent state of being in the very presence of God, never to be rejected. You permanently stand in this grace. You stand in this access. Christ has ushered you into the very presence of the King. You know, I've told you the story before. It's a little crude, but it's again from Martin Luther. Martin Luther looked over the German landscape and he saw what were called these dunghills. And for kids, I'll just be, it's a pile of poop, okay? These, these big dunghills and you guys out here, we, we smell it. We call it, the, the, we call it, what, the smell of money? Um, these big old dung hills, and they were dirty, and they were putrid, and they were yucky, and they were gross, and, and Martin Luther looked at that and said, you know what, that really describes the sinful condition. We are yucky, we are dirty, we are gross, but here's what happened in the wintertime when it snowed. When it snowed, what happened? The white, pristine snow would cover the dung hill. And it didn't look like a dunghill anymore. It looked like this freshly driven pile of snow. But underneath it's still what? A dunghill. And Martin Luther said, that's what a picture of justification is. Yes, we're sinful. We're rotten. But because we've been covered with the righteousness of Christ by his blood, even though we're rotten to the core, God can look down upon us and he doesn't see the dunghill. He sees freshly driven snow, pure white And God can say, I love you, I accept you, I forgive you, not because of anything you've produced because it's putrid. It's because of what Christ has given you. It's how Christ has covered you with his righteousness. Now why is this doctrine so important? Doctrine should always lead to devotion. Theology should always lead to thankfulness. Truth should should always lead to trembling before our great God. You can all relate to the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. O to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you are prone to wander? Your heart begins to wander. And if you're not careful, you can wander into some major ditches that are unhealthy. For some of you, you may wander into the ditch of pride and legalism where you begin to think that God loves you based upon your performance. The better I do, the stronger I am, the more I'm living for Him, the more God must love me, so I get on that treadmill and start performing and and put my resume out to God so that He'll accept me based upon how good I can keep being in His presence. And you get inflated thinking, I'm doing pretty good. God must love me. God must accept me because of, look at what I'm doing. That's a ditch. The other ditch that some of you may fall into is... And I'm never any good. I can never live up to God's standard. I am so guilty. I'm so overwhelmed. God must not love me. I am so despondent. I'm so much in despair. How could God love me? That's just as much a ditch as the other one. You see, there's two ditches that you and I will be easily falling into if we're not centered back upon this doctrine. We can either either be tempted to become very legalistic and prideful or very defeated and guilty. And let me just say this. The doctrine of justification brings us back to the middle and keeps us sane. Keeps us sane. Because when you stop and think about what God has done for you, on your greatest day, when you're having your quiet time, and you're doing everything, you're witnessing, and you're, you're like turbo Christian. God does not love you anymore because of your performance. And on those days when you're tanking and you're cussing at your wife and you're doing all these dumb things and you're thinking, how in the world am I ever, why am I even a Christian? God doesn't love you less because of your performance. God's love for you is constant based not upon your performance but upon Christ's in your place. And because of the doctrine of justification, God can look down upon you and say, you're accepted, you're loved. Now, if you go on and read the rest of Paul, it's not an excuse for you to go out and send your little heart out. That's another sermon. But let's just ask some questions here this morning. Do you see your need for justification? Have you come to that point where you realize you are a desperate sinner in need of salvation? Number two, what about the source? Have you praised God that the salvation comes as a gift, a free gift of grace to you outside of yourselves, what Luther would call an alien or an outside righteousness that's given to you as a gift? What about the ground of your salvation? Are you praising Christ for being your propitiation? Are you pondering the depths of the cross this morning and how Christ has loved you in his bloody cross? What about the means of salvation? Are you here this morning and you've never... Place your faith in Christ. Today is the day. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Place your faith in Christ. To experience this peace, to experience this joy, to experience the salvation, you have to personally place your faith in Christ. Do that today. Are you drifting into legalism or despair? Center yourself back upon the benefits. Do we need a reformation today? Yes. And I think there'd be a whole lot more sane, strong, powerful, committed Christians if we just got this doctrine right. And I just got the doctrine right, but lived in the truth of it. See, it's one thing to come out of here and say, okay, Sean gave us a theology lesson on justification by faith. It's another thing to leave this place with our hearts moved and gripped by this truth that impacts us on a day-by-day basis. There's been times in my quiet times where I prayed to the Lord. And just like you, you know you're a sinner. You know you've failed. You're sitting there before God Almighty and you're thinking, why would you even listen to me pray? I can't even come into your presence, God, because of my sin. Why would you accept a wretch like me? And you think those thoughts, and then I stop and I remember, Sean, Sean, you've been justified by god's grace alone it's not your righteousness it's christ's and god looks at you accepts you based upon jesus and you can go forth in the confidence of that grace and you can walk up and know that i'm going to fail again but god loves me based upon christ Not based upon my performance. If it was based upon my performance, I would be neurotic. And sometimes I am. And sometimes you are too. But justification is a doctrine that leads to this just resting in God's love for you and God's grace for you that was demonstrated in the cross. So I just hope this doctrine sinks down into your heart, not just into your head but it sinks down into your heart because it's an anchor for your soul. Martin Luther said, this is the doctrine upon which the church rises or falls. If the church gets this wrong, we get everything else wrong. This is the gospel. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's go to our great God and thank Him that we are justified freely by His grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, to God's glory alone as revealed in the Scripture alone. Spend some time praising your great God for saving you, for accepting you, for loving you on account of Christ and Christ alone. To remember the truth of the gospel, that we are outrageous sinners, but you are a loving God who can overcome the worst of our sins by the shed blood of your Son. Lord, my prayer is that if there's anybody in this room this morning that's never experienced that, they've never come to that point in their life where they've placed their faith, their whole life, in the arms of Christ and His saving power that today they would do that without hesitation. Lord, for those of us who have, would this doctrine never become stale or old? But Lord, let it be an anchor deep in our souls to remind us of who we are in Christ, to remind us of our forgiveness, to remind us of our standing, to remind us of our access, to remind us of our position. To remind us of your grace from first to last. Father, our hearts are prone to wander. We wander so often. This truth gets us back to the center. Bind our wandering hearts to you in this scripture. Lord, as we walk out of this place, Lord, let this scripture be ringing in our ears and let us meditate upon it all week. Let us ponder the glories of your cross. Let us ponder what it means to be justified. Let it not just stop here because we preached a sermon, but Lord, let it live out this week in our hearts and our minds. Lord, let us talk about it in our conversations. Let us be a people who are floored by your grace. And it's evident in our lives, in our speech, in our conduct, in everything about us. For your glory alone, Jesus, not ours. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.